verses. Why are we doing two chapters at once? Well, it's because the two chapters form one literary unit. You can see that unity in the way the passage is put together. It's very purposeful. So just notice real briefly how chapter 21 begins with David meeting Ahimelech who serves as priest at the city of Nob. And then turn one page over and notice how chapter 22 ends with that same priest, Ahimelech, except now he's killed by Saul. So the repetition of Ahimelech and the priest at Nob, that works like a pair of bookends. It holds up the two chapters as a single literary unit. That's why we're going to take them together. So enough on the structure of the passage. Let's give our attention now to what God has revealed in His Word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens, thou, his tens of thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see that the man is mad why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall, shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. 
Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you all have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen up against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king turned, said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me you shall be in safekeeping. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God given to us for our good. Let's ask God now to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Will you pray with me? Father, we need Your grace now to hear from Your Word as we ought to hear. We confess that our hearts are often hard. Our minds are often distracted. Our ears are often stopped up against what You want to say. And so we pray now for grace, God, 
to hear and to believe and to obey. We pray that you would encourage the faint-hearted, God, strengthen the weak, admonish the idle, correct the wayward, and save the lost. We pray that you would keep me from error, Father, and help me to speak things that are true from the Scriptures. And we ask in all these things that the Lord Jesus would be glorified in His church. In His name we pray. Amen. One of the more persuasive arguments for the truthfulness of Scripture is the Bible's realism. Unlike other ancient books, Scripture does not give us a whitewashed perspective on life. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the flaws and failures of its figures. Instead, the Bible embraces head-on the reality of life in this fallen world, and it does so at times in shocking detail. There are events included in the Bible that unsettle us. And even the so-called heroes of Scripture sometimes act in ways that are surprisingly unheroic. You see, far from being some sort of idealized mythology, Scripture testifies to its truthfulness by its realism. The Bible is a realistic book. To see an example of the Bible's realism, we have to look no further than our passage for this morning. We should acknowledge here at the outset there are aspects of our text we find unsettling. We have questions about some of David's decisions. And we find ourselves wondering why Saul is able to get away with such abhorrent evil. There's no sugarcoating these chapters. This passage, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us life as it really was for David. These are realistic chapters full of the difficulties we would expect to find in a fallen world. And this, of course, raises the question, what are we supposed to do with these kinds of chapters? We confess that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable to us, but how do we discern that profit in these kinds of texts? Where's the connection for us? Well, to answer that question, we need to go back to one of our foundational truths about God's Word. Remember, friends, the Bible is not the account of humanity searching for and finding God. The Bible is the account of God initiating and seeking out His people. You see, that's why the Bible is so realistic. Because God has not remained far off in heaven. God has stepped into the muck and mire of this messed up world full of messed up people like you and me. And here in the reality of life, God is present and God is working. Friends, remembering that truth is how we handle these kinds of passages. What are we looking for in these very realistic chapters? We're looking for what God is doing. How God is working. And how God is present with His people in the realities of life. Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to answer all of your questions about this text today. I still have questions that I'm trying to figure out. But I do hope, by God's grace, to point you to what God is doing in these chapters. For it's in God's work that we find strength and encouragement to continue walking by faith. So with that in mind, let's notice together four ways God is working 
in these very realistic chapters. Four ways God is working. Number one, God provides for His undeserving servant. God provides for His undeserving servant. David is still on the run from Saul, and his frenzied flight brings him to Nob, where Ahimelech serves as priest. And on the surface, this is a straightforward encounter. David stands in need. Verse 3, he needs bread. And verse 8, he needs a weapon. And Ahimelech agrees to help. Verse 6, he gives David bread. Verse 9, he gives David a sword. Not just any sword, but Goliath's sword. On the surface, it's very straightforward. But there's more to the story, isn't there? There are two difficulties here that demand our attention and help us see what God is doing. First off, there's the issue of what we could call David's story. Right away in verse 1, Ahimelech senses there's a problem. David arrives in Nob alone. That's not normally how a high-ranking official in the king's court would travel, by himself. So Ahimelech knows there's a problem, and he asks David with trembling in his voice, Why are you alone and no one with you? Then comes the difficulty, verse 2. David says he's on a secret mission from Saul. My men are just over the hillside, David says. I just need some bread. Now some commentators contend that since David's life is threatened, he's justified in telling this story. Other scholars would say that David's actually trying to protect Ahimelech by giving him plausible deniability. But if he is trying to protect Ahimelech, it fails miserably. For my part, I don't find those explanations very convincing. Just like I don't find David's story very convincing. It seems rather plain to me that David purposefully deceives Ahimelech. He lies. But perhaps what's even more striking is that the text makes no comment on David's action. This, this is important, friends. The text neither explains David's motives nor evaluates David's decision. There's no parenthetical comment that condemns David. Neither is there a parenthetical comment that justifies him. The text simply reports what happened so that the reality of the situation hits us squarely between the eyes. And the reality is this. David is seriously in need. He's at his wit's end. He's seemingly at the end of his rope. And in the midst of his desperation, he, he concocts this story about a secret mission. Again, we're confronted with something we discussed a few weeks ago. It's the difference between description and prescription. The, the Bible describes David's action in all of its questionable morality, but that doesn't mean the Bible then prescribes David's action. I know we want very clear-cut answers about what David did and why he did it, but that's not the concern of the text. It's not a commentary on situational ethics. Instead, these verses are intended to be a realistic snapshot of what life was like for David. He's a real person in real need, real desperation. And so, just seemingly at the end of his rope, he grasps for this story. The second difficulty concerns the bread that Ahimelech gives to David. The reality is Ahimelech doesn't have any common bread. All he has is holy bread. 
the bread of the presence that was baked fresh every Sabbath and put in the holy place of the tabernacle. There were 12 loaves. They were put in front of the lampstand. God's presence among His people. The bread given to the Lord. And therein lies the difficulty. This bread was given to God and it was only to be eaten by the priests. David, as you well know, is not a priest. Which of course causes us to ask, why does Ahimelech give him the bread? And was he right to do so? Well, mercifully, friends, Scripture resolves this difficulty for us. And the resolution comes from none other than the Lord Jesus. You'll remember in Mark chapter 2, early in Jesus' ministry, He's walking through the fields of grain on the Sabbath. And as He goes, His disciples are plucking heads of grain and rubbing it between their fingers and eating them. And the Pharisees, perceptive observers of all things life that they were, see the disciples plucking these heads of grain and they say, ha, you're breaking the law. You can't work on the Sabbath. You're, you're breaking the commandment. Do you remember what Jesus said? He reminds them of this moment from David's life. And then Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, what is Jesus getting at? His point had to do with the purpose of the law. This is important. The purpose of the law. At its heart, God's law was about extending mercy to His people. The law was never intended to harm God's people, but to help them by pointing them to God Himself. That's why the Pharisees were always wrong even when they were keeping commandments. Because they missed the mercy that the law itself mandated. This is why Jesus says the law is summed up in love God and love neighbor. At the heart, the law was about extending mercy. Think of it this way. If you caused a man to starve because you kept him from making food on the Sabbath, you haven't honored the Sabbath. You've broken it. All you've proven is that you never understood the Sabbath in the first place. So, back to 1 Samuel 21. Ahimelech gives David this bread. Why? Why? Because Ahimelech understands the purpose of the law is actually fulfilled in showing mercy. It's not that Ahimelech says, hmm, I'm going to set this commandment aside because this situation is desperate. No, he fulfills the law by showing compassion. It's compassion that causes Ahimelech to act. And according to the Lord Jesus, Ahimelech is right to do so. So two difficulties. David's deception. Ahimelech gives him the bread. If you put those two difficulties together, you can begin to see how God is working at this moment. Does David deserve this provision? No. Not really. He's less than forthright. And that's putting it charitably. And yet, what does the Lord do? What does God do? Out of the abundance of His own character and from His own supply, God gives David what he needs but does not deserve. That's grace, brothers and sisters. Not the kind of grace you read about in a textbook. That's grace that meets you in the muck and mire of the real world. That's grace that comes to you when you're desperate and when you have nowhere else to turn. And that's grace that comes to you and says, take this provision that you don't deserve, but I'm going to give. 
You see, if God's provision came to us only when we deserved it, then we'd all be hungry, homeless, and bound for hell. The entire premise of the Bible is that God provides for His people not because of who they are, but because of who He is. Why did I wake up today? Because God is gracious. Why did you eat breakfast? Why will you eat lunch? Because God is gracious. We don't deserve a lick of what we receive every day. Just like David does not deserve this bread. And yet we live and we eat, we sleep and we breathe. Why? All because God deals with us on the basis of His character, not on the basis of our merit. So before we shake our heads and quibble that David doesn't deserve this kindness, we should recognize our testimony in these verses. And that in turn should lead us to renewed faith and gratitude that we serve such a gracious God. What is God doing in this realistic, desperate moment? He's doing what He always does. Providing for His people not because they deserve it, but because He's gracious. That's number one. Number two, the second way God works in this text. God delivers in an unexpected way. God delivers in an unexpected way. David can't stay in Nob. It's too dangerous. Notice the hint of danger in verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. File that away. It's only a passing reference, but it's enough to send a chill up your spine. One of Saul's servants sees, and he's an Edomite no less. David can't stay in Nob. He's got to keep running. But then David does something curious. Maybe we could even say foolish. Notice where he goes in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. If there was any doubt about David's desperation, then this decision settles it. He flees to the Philistines. Who would do this? Can you imagine? David, Israel's champion, the slayer of the giant, the guy who is carrying Goliath's sword, goes to Goliath's hometown and says, will you, will you, will you protect me? The text doesn't tell us why David did this, but we don't have to know the reason to understand the reality. If you think your enemies are going to help you, then you're really desperate. And that's where David is. Whatever David's reason, the plan doesn't work. In fact, it appears to backfire. Notice verse 11. Israel's song about David is apparently very popular in Philistia. It's made its way all the way down to Gath. And Achish's advisors warn the king against protecting Israel's champion. Perhaps it's a trap, they say. Surely he'll turn on us, they warn. So David's not going to find any refuge in Gath. But now he has a new problem. How's he going to get out of this situation? The Philistines aren't going to let him just walk out of town. So what is he going to do? Well, notice verse 13. David puts on a performance for the ages. He feigns madness. He pretends to be insane. He goes around drooling on himself and scribbling strange markings on the walls. Ask yourself, does that man appear to be a threat? I mean, maybe to himself, but certainly not to a powerful man like Akish. 
And incredibly, the plan works. Notice verses 14 and 15. I don't know why, but Akish apparently has a lot of crazy people around him. Why would he want another one? It's a horrible place to live. And so David's pretended insanity brings about his actual escape. So what are we supposed to make of David's performance in Gath? That should be an exercise in a preaching class someday. What's the application from David pretending to be insane? Don't pretend to be insane. Don't move to Philistia. I don't know. What are we supposed to make of David's performance in Gath? We might simply chalk it up to David's quick thinking. I think it's a pretty clever plan. It's rather shrewd. But is there more we could say? Is there something else we should take away from David's time in Gath? Well, yes, there is. And we know that's the case because David tells us so. This moment in Gath prompted David to write two psalms. Psalms 34 and 56. We read 56 earlier in the service. And in both psalms, David does something remarkable. He gives praise to God for God's work of deliverance. You see, David recognized it wasn't his own clever scheme that saved his skin. It was the Lord's hand. David got himself into the mess, but the Lord in His mercy got David out of it. Again, this is not... This is not me trying to spiritualize the text. This is Scripture interpreting Scripture. This is David's own perspective given to us in the inspired words of the Psalter. So catch what the Lord has done here. This is is so key, friends. Catch what the Lord has done. In His wisdom, God has taken David's foolishness and turned it into an occasion for worship. When it seems David has lost sight of the Lord, maybe only a little, God reveals Himself afresh and prompts David to renewed praise. That's mercy, brothers and sisters. It's mercy that God doesn't leave David to himself, but instead delivers him in an unexpected way that prompts renewed praise. It's mercy. Listen, I don't mean to suggest that we should run around making foolish decisions in hopes that God will work unexpectedly. This passage is not at all an excuse for foolish behavior or sinful choices. But I do want to urge us to recognize that the mercy of God is just that. Mercy. It comes to us not because we're wise enough to follow the best course of action. It comes to us because God refuses to leave us to ourselves. How many times have we found ourselves in a mess of our own making? only to receive an unexpected and undeserved deliverance. Those are moments of praise, friends. Those are moments of praise. Not because we've done everything right, but because God is merciful and delivers His people oftentimes from their own foolishness. He delivers in an unexpected way. That's number two. Number three. The third way God works in these realistic chapters. God raises up an unlikely shepherd. God raises up an unlikely shepherd. In the first five verses of chapter 22, David keeps running. It's a bit frantic. 
He leaves Gath and heads for the cave of Adullam. He then leaves the cave and goes to Moab, which is across the Jordan River. And then after Moab, David winds up in Judah. It's a frenetic account with David moving quickly from from place to place. And yet these verses are more than a travel log. They also reveal what God is doing in the life of David while he's on the run. God is establishing David as a shepherd over his people. At each point in the journey, the text gives us a different picture of David's leadership. So that by the end we find ourselves saying, yes, this man will be a good shepherd. Notice with me how it plays out across the the journey. First of all, David is presented as a capable shepherd. Notice who comes to David in verse 2. Everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul. Friends, these are not the folks you would want as your neighbors. These are the outcasts of society, the riffraff, the rabble-rousers, the troublemakers. But they are drawn to David, who in turn becomes their captain and their leader. The end of the verse should get your attention. David takes this rabble and he turns them into a cohesive, organized band of men. He's a capable shepherd and his leadership turns outcasts into followers. The journey continues, and in verse 3 we see David is also a faithful shepherd. His family joined him in verse 1, but his parents are too old to live on the run, so David takes them to Moab. Why Moab? Why would you go to Moab? Well, remember, David's great-grandmother was Ruth, who was a Moabite. So God's providence has now come full circle. Two generations back, the Lord gave a Moabite woman a family in Israel so that now an Israelite man might find a home for his family in Moab. That's what God's doing. So even though the trip was long and difficult, David faithfully shepherds his parents to safety. He's a faithful shepherd. Finally, verse 5, we see David is an obedient shepherd. After the trip to Moab, David heads back to his stronghold, but not for long. A prophet of the Lord directs David to head to Judah, Understand, friends, that direction makes little sense at this point. Judah is closer to Saul. If David goes to Judah, he's more likely to be captured. And yet, that is what God commands David to do, and so David obeys. You see, David understands something Saul never fully grasped, that God's Word is always for our good. God's Word is always for our good. Even when we can't see where God is taking us or why He's doing so, the right response is always humble submission. This is why David will be king. Not because he's perfect, but because he understands that leadership begins with submission to God. He's capable, he's faithful, he's obedient. Now before we go on, I know some of you are thinking, wait a second, In the first two scenes, David was less than stellar. And now you're telling me in this scene, right after it, immediately, he's doing better? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Isn't that what it's like to be a follower of God? Highs and lows, ups and downs, strength mixed with weakness, faith mixed with unbelief. Don't begrudge the fact that David's life is a mixed bag because that's our life too. So God's raising up an unlikely shepherd. He's capable He's faithful. He's obedient. Brothers and sisters, do you see the quiet kindness of God in these verses? 
If we were to cast this scene in terms of good guy versus bad guy, it would appear that Saul, the villain, is winning. He seems to have the upper hand. And David can't find a moment's peace. And yet, what is God doing in the midst of David's frenetic running? The Lord is raising up a shepherd. He's cultivating a king. And not just any king. God is cultivating a king who will lead outcasts, protect the weak, and submit to God's word. Everything that Saul is not. You've got got to grasp it. Everything that Saul is not, God is shaping in David through these years on the run. It's not that God works in spite of David's hardship. It's that God works through David's hardship. David would not have been the king he was without these years on the run. He would not have been the king he was without those dark nights in the cave. The dark nights in the cave made him the faithful king. It's not in spite of the hardship, but through the hardship. This is how God shaped David to be the kind of shepherd His people so desperately need. Is this not the kindness of God? In the midst of turmoil, God is working for His people. And while it may be quiet and hard to notice, it overflows with the Lord's kindness. And so, from from these verses, friends, the Spirit's voice is saying to you and me, very simply, trust Him. Trust Him. You see, that's why the Bible is so full of these moments of quiet kindness. Because that's what following the Lord looks like in real life. It happens in the quiet moments of each and every day. And so this moment from David's life here in chapter 22 is God's way of reminding us not to judge His purposes too quickly. The dark nights in the cave are not the end of the story. In the moment, we we may not see what God is doing. I mean, most days, if you were to ask me, Jeff, what is God doing in your life right now? I would say, "I, I don't know. I don't know specifically can't see in the moment, but in every moment we can trust that God's kindness stands behind His every move. That wonderful old hymn, behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. So again, the Spirit is saying to us, through David's dark night in the cave, the Spirit is saying to us very simply, trust Him because He's trustworthy, because He's kind, because He's good. Because He's doing 10,000 things in your life right now that you're not even aware of. Trust Him. God raises up an unlikely shepherd and in doing so, His kindness compels us once more to walk by faith. That's number three. Number four. The final way God works in this passage. God advances His unfailing plan. God advances His unfailing plan. In verse 6 of chapter 22, the passage shifts from David to Saul. And as it shifts, we see Saul's spiritual state continues to spiral downward. He's sitting under a tree with his spear in his hand. It seems like Saul's spear is always in his hand. This would be like watching television with your gun in your lap. Who does that? A crazy person. And if you do that, I'm sorry for just insulting you because I forgot it was Arkansas. 
He's got his spear in his hand. He's always got his spear in his hand. And he's berating his servants. Notice verses 7 and 8. Everywhere he looks, Saul sees enemies. And that includes his own court. He's having a pity party. He bemoans that no one will help him get rid of David. No one will help me. No one discloses me. No one tells me any secrets. Nobody that is except Doeg, the Edomite. Now we see why Doeg's presence in chapter 21 was so chilling. Notice verse 9. Doeg gladly rats out Ahimelech. And Saul, as you might expect, is outraged. He sins for not only Ahimelech, but for all the priests of the Lord at Nob. If you know anything of the story so far, you know this is not going to end well. And indeed it doesn't. Notice what transpires in verse 10 and following. Saul accuses Ahimelech of treason. You're in league with David, he says. You're just waiting to strike me down. Ahimelech rightly points out both his innocence and David's innocence. Verse 14, he's never heard of a plot, let alone is he the ringleader of a plot. He's just a priest. Saul's not listening. His deranged mind is made up. Verse 16, he sentences Ahimelech and all the other priests to death. Then something unexpected happens. Verse 17, Saul's servants defy their master. You'll notice in this section that Saul is most often referred to as the king. It's an ironic twist that's intended to reveal Saul's position. He's the king, but he's got no authority. He can't enforce his orders. His servants are more righteous than he is. But Saul's not deterred. His servant's defiance should cause him to slow down, to reconsider, but Saul barrels ahead. He's blinded by sin. He's driven by rage. And in verse 18, Saul joins forces with Doeg, the Edomite. Don't miss that, friends. The king of Israel, the one who should lead God's people to know and serve the Lord, the so-called king of Israel, makes an alliance with this God-hating Edomite. Doeg, for his part, proves to be an effective enforcer. Doeg strikes down all 85 priests, and then he proceeds to destroy the entire city of Nob. Notice the horrendous outcome in verse 19. It's hard to even read in public. Man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, He put to the sword. Friends, do you remember what happened in chapter 15? The Lord commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites who had opposed God and oppressed His people. Did Saul obey that command? No. He refused. But here in chapter 22, Saul does to his own people what he wouldn't do to the Amalekites. He devotes his own people to destruction. There can be no doubt at this point. Saul is an enemy of God. He may be an Israelite by blood, but Saul is an Edomite at heart. His place is not among God's people, but with God's enemies. Lost in all the bloodshed, however, is a small but hopeful detail. Notice verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Brothers and sisters, I know it's small, but don't miss this stunning providence of God. Abiathar should be dead. The entire town was destroyed. Not even an animal made it away. But in the Lord's providence, Abiathar escapes. And where does he go? Straight to David, who in verse 23 promises to protect 
Abiathar from this point forward. And that's what happens. Until the end of David's life, Abiathar is faithful to David. And on that note, the chapter ends with king and priest together. So notice what has happened, friends. What Saul intended for evil, God has used to advance His purposes. David, who is God's chosen king, is now served by Abiathar, who is God's appointed priest, king and priest together. That doesn't ignore Saul's wickedness, and neither does it take away the grief of the city of Nob. But it does remind us that no evil can derail God's purposes. Despite Saul's madness, God is working out His plan. King and priest are together. And therefore, God's work among His people marches ever onward. Brothers and sisters, there is a sobering but deeply comforting truth at work in this tragic scene. God does not promise to spare us from every hardship or every wickedness. He does not promise that. There are times when we will suffer for His sake, even to the point to where we lose what is precious to us, whether that be our life or the life of fellow believers whom we love. The history of the church is built on the testimony of those who have laid down their lives for Christ. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So God doesn't promise to spare us from every hardship or every wickedness. But this is what God does promise us. That no hardship will ever stop His kingdom. That no wickedness will ever thwart His plan. That no scheme of hell will ever topple His church. So listen to me. As we witness Abiathar scamper away to find refuge with David, we should hear the words of the risen Christ ringing in our ears, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what this scene is saying. You see, until the Lord Jesus returns, there will be many Doegs who rise up to strike down God's people. And listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. There are going to be seasons where those Doegs seem to have success. Where they will kill God's people. But there's a day coming. A great day. And on that day, the eastern sky will split and the root and descendant of David will descend with the armies of heaven, with eyes of flaming fire and a sharp sword coming out of His mouth. And on that day, friends, all the Doegs of this age will beg for the mountains to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. So take heart, brothers and sisters. Take heart. God doesn't promise to spare us from every hardship. He promises us something better. That nothing will stand against His kingdom. And armed with that promise, we can gladly give our lives to the work of the Gospel, even to the greatest degree, knowing that in Christ our labor is never in vain. You know what I love the most about these realistic chapters? They give us a realistic hope. God has not remained far off, distant from the realities of this fallen world. God has entered into the muck and the mire of our world. And here in the reality of life, He's present and He's working. We witness that in David's life and praise God, we know it to be true in our lives as well. God is gracious. He is merciful. His kindness never ends and His kingdom endures forever. Amen?
Let's pray.